Good morning, everyone. As we approach the Word of God, would you join me in a time of prayer? Let's pray. Soften our hearts, Father, as we hear your voice in the Scriptures, as you address us and speak to us, to challenge, to comfort, to contradict us, to confront us, to do whatever it is in your sovereignty, according to your spirit, you want to do to conform your people. As Al read for us, I was struck in that uh, writing by the prophet Ezekiel, that there is one shepherd, there is one captain, there is one leader, one God, and one people of God, and you are forming a people for yourself. So Lord, I pray that we would look at your word by your spirit this morning not simply for information, but how can our lives be formed according to your spirit, according to your word. So Lord, take us and do this work in us. Teach us this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading, the teaching upon which, the word upon which the teaching is based this morning is found in Mark chapter 9. So if you have Bibles, if not, Look at that. There they are right on the wall. So many choices. iPads, iPhones. You know, when I started preaching however many years ago, it was Bible and that's it. Now there's a half dozen different choices. Let's turn our attention to God's word. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire, and salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. And friends, this is the very word of the Lord. I have to admit, in, oh, roughly 30 to 45 minutes, I go on vacation. See, look at this. See this smile come over my face? I'm not real sure it's appropriate to preach like this with this kind of smile on my face when I'm talking about cutting off hands and feet and that kind of stuff. I thought to myself as I was preparing, I was saying, it really is true that God in his providence can have a sense of humor because you want to talk about a challenging text and then I'm going to say, here you go, Andrew, you got them. I'm about to speak to them for about a half hour on the challenges of discipleship. And that's what we're talking about. I titled this sermon, Is Holiness. And holiness really is what following Jesus, the life of discipleship, is all about. And I titled the sermon, Is Holiness Important to You? 
Now, for a second, let's put this in context, what's going on. In the passage we just looked at in Mark chapter 9, the disciples, okay, and who are the disciples? This is Jesus' main leadership team. Jesus knows he's going to live, that his mission, remember I said how Mark, keep, keep these things in mind, this is why I repeat them every week. Mark is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it's divided into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 8, is basically giving us who is Jesus, who is this king, what's he like, what's his personality like. So it's highlighting interactions with others, highlighting how he treats others. The second half of the gospel, verses 9 through 16, is answering the question, if we have this king, what did this king come to do? And the answer is simple. This king came to die. Jesus knows that is his mission, that he came to die for his people, that it was going to take his death and his death on a cross to form a people for himself that after being raised from the dead and equipping them with the Holy Spirit, he was going to leave the mission in their hands. So he leaves the mission in their hands, and then just to kind of connect the dots to us, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how the Word of God is written, and it's written on what? So what we've been left is on the foundation of the prophets, Old Testament, and apostles, New Testament. So the mission's going to be left in their hands. They're going to write what we're going to find out is the New Testament scriptures, and then that mission is given to us. Now, the mission, sometimes I wonder, God, you sure you didn't have a plan B? You're putting the mission in our hands. Yes, you're giving us the equipment, the power. You're anointing us with the Spirit. We have that resource to carry it out. But have you ever seen us? I mean, take a look around. The disciples in the passage we just looked at are arguing about who's the greatest. So they're sitting there and they're talking about, it's me. No, it's him. Wait a second. Levi, he's better than Thomas. Thaddeus over here, he's better than John. James, he's better than Peter. You know, they're all concerned about greatness and status and rank and where they are. And Jesus takes a little child and he puts him in their midst. And he talks to them about humility and service and sacrifice. And now in this text, Jesus is continuing to train them, to equip them, to prepare them for the mission. For the mission of discipleship. For discipleship has to do, discipleship is one of the prominent themes in the Gospel of Mark. Discipleship has to do with holiness. And holiness, the word does not, see sometimes I think holiness gets a bad rap. We think of holiness and we think of what? Rigidity. Moral uptightness. He's a holier than thou. It's a negative thing. You know what holiness means? Holiness means that you are set apart to belong to another. It is actually quite the affirming and dignifying word. It means that you are set apart. Words that indicate holiness is when God calls his people, he calls us church his treasured possession. We are to the praise of his glorious grace. And the paradox in looking at holiness and looking at discipleship, is that in belonging to him, being set apart from him, in a sense losing yourself, you actually fulfill the purpose for which you were created. You actually become the greatest you, because the greatest you is who you are in Jesus Christ. Which makes things like this passage we're looking at this morning 
Anything that causes you to sin, your hand, your foot, is anything that causes you to be less human. This may sound like a very hard and harsh passage. This is an unbelievable, gracious passage because this is truly one thing remains. God's love, his passionate pursuit of us, his adoration, his being in love with his people is the one thing that remains. And anything that gets in the way of that, be it hand, be it foot, be it eye, be it what we do to ourselves, be it anything, he is committed because he is committed to us becoming fully human. He is committed to forming us to look like Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to hear at the outset, because this is a difficult passage, but it it really is a gracious passage. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis said, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you actually save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, the death of your favorite wishes every day, and eventually the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, or look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, decay. But look to Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. One PCA pastor put it this way. He said, Christ said, follow me, not just think about me. Discipleship is dynamic. It starts at his feet, but it means yours have to get moving too. This is a serious call to self-examination and to action, asking the question, to whom does your ultimate allegiance lie? I have a thesis. I honestly believe in the church today, not just Spruce Creek, I'm not, I'm not excluding us, but this isn't directed solely at us, that we actually have a discipleship crisis. Not necessarily a church crisis, There's one pastor, I have no idea, This I found this in my notes, I know I didn't make it up, I can't take credit for it, but I've been doing this for almost 30 years, I have no idea where I get some of my quotes anymore. But there's one pastor, I just know I won't take credit for this, one pastor who said the church in America today is basically a mile wide but an inch deep. I happen to think that's true. You look around and everybody still comes to worship, people still sing the songs, pray the prayers. Look, you're you're even looking at me while I speak. You're polite. No tomatoes being thrown. Serious call to self-examination, though. Are we a mile wide and an inch deep? See, listen to what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about concerning someone else to sin. He actually says, and I don't want to water this down, he says it would be better for you if you caused someone else to sin to have a giant millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. I had to read that twice. And he talks about in terms of causing yourself to sin, being ensnared yourself to sin, that if one of your members, your hand, your foot, your eye, very good gifts from God, not evil things, but good things 
how we prioritize our time, what's most important, to whom does our ultimate allegiance lie? Salvation by grace alone through faith alone means we're united to Jesus Christ and we confess Jesus as Lord, not co-pilot. He is the object of our ultimate allegiance. And it means we need to ask the question, if any of these good things are leading me astray, are causing me to sin, have nothing to do with them. Cut them off. So he's preparing them for mission, and he does so in this text. And he's preparing us for mission. Now notice, this text doesn't give us the specifics of what that mission is. You don't find your, this is not a go and make disciples, this is not a love God, love others, love the world text. This is about the basics. This is almost like basic training. This is the preconditions, if you would, for mission. This would be what's true of every mission before you get to the specifics of what your actual mission is. And he's basically saying mission has three things. Every mission has participants, every mission has a cost, and every mission has a leader. Every mission has participants, every mission has requirements, demands, a cost, and every mission has a leader. Look with me at verse 38. John said to him, now I I love this by the way, because I could picture John. He knows they've just kind of been embarrassed about their argument of who's the greatest. So what does John do? He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And they're not part of our tribe. They haven't gone to the Jesus seminary. They haven't done all of the training, all of the teaching. They may, be, they may believe by baptism by immersion, not baptism by sprinkling. They may have some of their details wrong. And we told them, knock it off. Stop. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now, you can almost hear in John, what is John expecting? He's expecting Jesus to say, that a boy, John. Way to go. You did great. What does Jesus do? He says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, there's a mission. We're at war. There are participants in the mission. And there are more participants than you could ever imagine. The kingdom of God, the work of God, the mission of God is bigger than you can imagine. And if they're not against us, guess what? They're for us. Now, it's real interesting. I love how Mark puts together kind of the literary structure of his gospel, how he kind of shapes this together, because after each major prediction, after each major prophecy that Jesus gives of his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection, what Mark will do is insert a response of one of the three closest disciples. So in chapter 8, it was Peter. Here, it's John. Later on in chapter 10, it'll be James, followed by John. I think Mark, even in the way he is structuring his narrative, is making a point, basically saying, even those closest to Jesus fail to understand the purpose of the cross for their life and mission. Even those who walked with him, who listened to him, who sat at his feet, even us who have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, not external to us, 24-7, 
don't understand the grace of God and the power of the cross that forms our life and mission. See, what had gotten the disciples so upset? The text tells us that John went to Jesus, and he went to Jesus on behalf of the, all the other disciples. He's kind of the spokesman here. I guess he's giving Peter a break. And because the text says, if you look at the pronouns, it says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because they were not following us. And the irony, commentators point this out, the irony behind this is here's John saying, Jesus, we stopped others from casting out demons, from doing spiritual warfare in your name. And remember the sermon Andrew preached a couple weeks back in Mark chapter 9 when the disciples were unable to conduct spiritual warfare and cast out a demon in Jesus' name? So here they couldn't do it, and others who can do it successfully, they're saying, knock it off. And Jesus rebukes them and stops them. And what is Jesus actually doing? He is saying, you have too narrow a view of the kingdom of God and the work of God. In other words, they are guilty here, and what Jesus is opposing is tribalism. You know what tribalism is? Tribalism is what you say, is basically when you say, in order to participate with you. We're not talking about in order to teach from the pulpit. We're not talking about in order to be a leader. In, the, in order to participate in the work of God, you have to think like us, look like us, speak like us, act like us. You have to be exactly of our tribe. You know what Jesus says is the requirement? And it's exclusive in a sense, but it's such a broad Exclusion, you have to do it in his name. You have to do the work of God in the name of Jesus because there is only one God and there's only one king and there's only one kingdom. Jesus says, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Let him join us in the work. Let him, yeah, he may not evangelize the way we do. We'll disagree. We'll, we'll talk about our distinctives. He'll talk. Are we both speaking in the name of Jesus? Join in, because the participants in the mission of the kingdom is larger, and you need all the help that you can get. That's the first point. There are participants in the mission. Second, look with me at verse 43. There's a cost, there are requirements, there are demands. He says, now if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, obviously, we don't t I hope we don't take these words literally. Anybody show up this morning with a chainsaw? You were prepared for the sermon? And you came and we're cutting off some hands, cutting off some feet. Okay, good, we get that. So what's going on here? Jesus is saying there is a cost to discipleship. That this is a mission, 
He's basically saying, one commentator put it, he said the theme of this overarching passage is, do you as disciples know there's a war on? In other words, is holiness important to you? Remember I said earlier, we have a discipleship crisis in our country. Who takes this kind of discipleship seriously? One commentator put it this way. He said, these commands refer to precious parts of one's personality, to aspects of one's full humanness, which may from time to time cause one to stumble, which may, that is, bring about one's ruin, one's ultimate ruin as a follower of Jesus. The immediate meaning in the context seems to be that John and his disciples had better watch out in case their desire for honor, remember they're arguing about who was the greatest, that their desire for honor when Jesus becomes king will eventually prevent them in part from being his disciples at all. Anything that gets in the way must go. Many today write and speak as if the only purpose in following Jesus were to find complete personal fulfillment and satisfaction, to follow a way or path of personal spirituality which will meet our felt needs. That is hardly the point. God is at work in our world, so are the forces of evil, and there really is no time or space for self-indulgent spiritualities that shirk the slightest personal cost or even resist it on the grounds that all the desires and hopes one finds within one's heart must be God-given and so must be realized. See, the text is Jesus is not calling us to sacrifice things that are evil or wrong in themselves. Hands, feet, eyes are God-given creations, God-given gifts. The question is, are they leading us into sin? Give you an Old Testament illustration. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba, found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. See, are our hands, feet, or eyes leading us to rest too long on temptation? Think about David when he saw Bathsheba sunbathing on the roof. Don't let your eye rest there. Flee, tear it out. Anything that gets in the way. Your true, this is grace. Your true happiness is obedience to Jesus. You were built, you were designed, you were created for to live in communion, in relationship, in participation, in fellowship with Jesus. St. Augustine put it, the heart will be restless. Always seeking for something else, always seeking for something more. Always, it'll be restless until it finds its rest in Christ and Christ alone. So Jesus says the consequences of this is real. When he talks about hell, the literal word that's used there is the word Gehenna, and Gehenna would have a very literal meaning to the disciples, to those walking in the first century world. Because Gehenna was the valley that ran past the southwest corner of the old city of Jerusalem and was used as Jerusalem's rubbish heap continually kept smoldering. Anytime they came past that old city of Jerusalem, they would be very much aware of the fires burning, of the fires burning. And Jesus saying, see that? There's ultimate ruin that can come to your life. Are you, is holiness important to you? And then he goes on, if you look with me at verse 49, to say sin not only has consequences on yourself, but remember the overarching con. Context. 
He's preparing them for mission. This is not just a you and Jesus text, but everything you do will have an impact on others. Everything you do not only affects yourself, but it affects others. So Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you be made salt? How can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now let's explore this for just a second. What does Jesus mean here? What is the function of salt and how can salt lose its saltiness? Well, first of all, we need to recognize if it's truly salt, it will remain salt. But as one writer, F.F. F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, reminds us, he says, in the ordinary experience of life in the first century ancient world, so we've got to bridge the gap between the ancient world and our world today, he says, in the ordinary experience of life in the ancient world, salt was rarely found in a pure state. It was always mixed with other substances, varied forms of the earth. So long as the proportion of salt in the mixture would serve the purpose of true salt, in other words, continue to be salty, it would accomplish its function. But if, through exposure to damp, some other reason, if all the salt in the mixture was leaked out, what was left was worthless. What was left was good for nothing. Jesus has told his disciples, see, what is the function of salt? Jesus has told his disciples that they are And thus, remember, our scriptures are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That means we have a vocation. We have a function. We have a very public function. We are to serve the world by being, what does salt do? It's a preservative. See, recognize in the ancient world there was no refrigeration Salt was put in meat to keep it whole, to keep it pure, to keep it from stinking and rotting and going bad. We are in the world to, that means we are missional by very definition. Jesus is preparing us for mission. He's saying, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. If we fail at this, why do we even exist in the world? If salt loses its saltiness, the idea of an insipid salt is a contradiction. We, are, we have a public witness and a public theology by definition. And of course, when we read through the New Testament, we see one of the chief functions. This is not go out and save the world. This is not go out and transform the world. How are we salt of the earth? How are we light of the world? How do we keep ourselves from losing our saltiness? It is in our every ordinary day-to-day relationships. Being conformed to Christ and reflecting Christ. And the Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 4, puts one of the functions of salt very simply. He says it's our words or our speech. Colossians chapter 4, he says, Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Being salt, again, is holiness important to you? One of the chief functions then of holiness is your words, your speech, seasoned with salt. The cost of mission is not just the impact it has on yourself, it is the impact it has on others. 
Let me take an illustration from our everyday life, and it may be a very unpopular decision. This may be one of those where I'm going, I'm glad I'm going on vacation in a few minutes. But I think it's a very appropriate illustration for our day-to-day -day lives today. Take the issue of social media. The question we need to ask, whether we're on Twitter, Facebook, I could be like Bill Belichick, the coach of uh, the New England Patriots, InstaFace, whatever you call all those things. Okay? See, I'm giving you a hard truth now. I need to settle it in easy. But the question we need to ask ourselves, remember I said this is a serious call to self-examination and action. The question to ask ourselves is not do I like something, is not what is my opinion, is not everybody needs to know how I feel about this. The question that needs to be asked is what impact will this have on others? Now, of course, an objection can be made. Does that mean I back down on truth? Of course not. We never back down on truth, but be very careful here between discerning absolute truth and your opinion. Absolute truth and your interpretation. We need to ask, if salt loses its saltiness, Jesus is very clear, what good is it? It's lost its function, it's lost its usefulness. I know I have to look at my Facebook profile and my, you know, I look at it, and I go, I have connections from when I was literally 10 years old playing baseball, going up into high school, seminary friends, people from my youth ministries in Virginia Beach and Philadelphia, people from my churches in Philadelphia, Oklahoma City, obviously here in Florida, campus outreach folks. I have Anglos and African Americans I have young and old, before I like anything, before I post anything, before I put anything, the first question I should be asking is, is this consistent with salt? Does this like be consistent? What impact will it have on others? Because my first identity is not to Jeff Birch, it is to Jesus Christ. And that's who we are. Paul put it this way, he says, all things are lawful. In other words, yes, you're free to say and do whatever you want. But not all things are helpful. This is 1 Corinthians 10. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but only the good of his neighbor. Friends, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you're in a war. And you have been enlisted by Jesus Christ, the one who elected you, to be in his mission. And there is a cost to that mission. This is a serious call to self-examination. Now, of course, if we take seriously Jesus' words, we need to ask ourselves, who in the world can be his disciple? Who's qualified? The answer, of course, is none of us. No one. We are all disqualified. We are all deserving of the fires of hell. But if every mission has participants, and every mission has a cost or requirements, every mission also has a leader. You know, I have to admit, I'm a sucker for the movies. Like, I love movies where they throw the sports coach. Okay? Old Newt Rockney. Let's win one for the Gipper. Let's go, go, go. Or you're watching something. Or an old war movie, something like Patton or something. And he's basically, 
showing the, the leader, and you would give your hand, give your foot, do whatever it took to follow that lead. Isn't that exciting? Anybody like me and love those kinds of movies? You know what those movies do? They inspire. And you want to know how long those movies last for me? Till I've gotten my second bowl of popcorn. It's about how long the inspiration lasts. See, we don't need a leader who inspires. We need a leader who actually substitutes himself for us and fulfills what we could never fulfill. We, we don't need a leader who can motivate. We need a leader who becomes our champion and our hero, who does what we could never do in our place. See, I want you to think about something for a second. Is it truly our hand or our foot or our eye that causes us to sin? Is our biggest problem in life really our hand or foot or eye? See, remember what Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Mark, taking this right out of Mark's own narrative. Mark said, there's, Jesus said in Mark, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but it is the things that come out of a person. These are what defile him. For what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Friends, your problem and my problem is not our hand, not our foot, not our eye. The problem is our hearts. And our hearts are a problem we can't fix. No amount of sucking it up, willpower, doing better, New Year's resolution, pulling yourself up, will be able to solve the problem of your heart. What's needed is a brand new heart. To have, this was part of what the Old Testament rite of circumcision was all about. It was about having the old cut away and replaced with the new. And what Paul wrote in the New Testament is that when we come to Christ and we're baptized into Christ, we've received a circumcision not made with hands. You've, read the, you've received the true circumcision that when you come to Christ, you've received a new heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. You are a new person. You have a new you. And the only way for us to get a new heart is to be united to and participate in the heart of Christ. And the only way for us to be able to do that is Jesus needed to have cut off, not his hand, not his foot, not his eye. He had to have his own heart cut off from the heart of God in order to bring us in. Isaiah prophesying about the cross in Isaiah 53 said that he had cut off, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Jesus went into Gehenna, outside the camp, into the actual fires of hell, so that we could be brought in. He endured the very wrath of God, so that we would never have to endure the wrath of God. We would never have to fear being cut off. And see, that is actually the solution to our discipleship crisis. 
we need to understand more fully, more deeply, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it means to be a Christian is that you are united to Jesus Christ, that his death is actually your death. His life is actually your life. You are united to him and you participate in him. That you actually have his spirit. You walk in his power. You love with his love. You've been given his heart. You're actually united to him. If we understood his grace and what the grace meant in its fullness, the fullness of the gospel, I think the mission would be more central in our lives. And maybe we would grow and have less of a discipleship crisis. See, we think we understand the gospel, but do we? This is a call to self-examination and to action. If we really understood the grace of God, what it means that we're forgiven, past, present, you're forgiven. If you're in Christ and his death is your death, you're forgiven for the sins you will commit a thousand, you know, however many years from now. If you really believed justification, why are you so defensive? If you're really counted righteous in Jesus Christ so that you are just as acceptable, just as gorgeous, just as beautiful to God in God's sight, that he treats you, he trusts you, he delights in you, just like he does in Jesus why are we so hypersensitive to criticism? We should be able to say, you know what? I don't take holiness very seriously. I prioritize 16 other things ahead of Jesus Christ. And we go, thank the Lord I'm justified. Lord, help me to grow in this. We would understand the dynamic of grace in our lives. Oh, friends, let this be a call to action that Jesus is preparing us and equipping us for mission to go out there and to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would take discipleship seriously and that we would recognize this is not a harsh word. This is what would make us happy. We were built, we were designed to belong to you. To lose ourself in you is to find our true self. Lord, help us to trust your goodness. Help us to trust your grace. Help us to see, and Lord, maybe our issue is we don't want you to love us as much as you really do love us. But help us to recognize that your love never fails and that you do pursue us. We praise you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.